Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The Second World War is one of the most documented events in U.S. history, and yet little has been written about the dissenting men and women who oppose entering the war and how their strategies fostered a tradition of activism that has shaped America right up to the present day. Daniel Axe tells that story in his latest book, War by Other Means, The Pacifists of the Greatest Generation Who Revolutionized Resistance, which is just out from Melville House, and he joins us now. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Leonard. You write, in the history of progressive change in this country, resistance to the Second World War is the crucial missing link. Progressive change? Weren't our enemies during the war anything but progressive? You know, Leonard, when I when I first uh, started working on this book, um, in my mind, the title was The Great Mistake because uh-huh. uh, the pacifists who refused to fight this war, I think, were uh, uh, were not right in, in, in refusing to do so. Uh, however, uh, they were right about so much else and for so long afterwards that uh, our society is different as a result. And I think that you can see uh, the outlines of the modern left in the pacifists, uh, American pacifists during during World War II, uh, in a variety of ways, and they uh, served as well an important role in um, upholding our freedoms, just as the fighting men did, because they 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 called us to conscience, and they insisted on civil rights and and uh, civil liberties and so forth. So there's there's a lot to say on that matter, but I do believe they are an important and overlooked um, missing link between. Uh, uh, the left of the past and the left of today, as well as uh, in understanding how America uh, got to be where it is. How widespread were anti-war feelings in the 1930s? Well, in the, and great question and, 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 a, and a good precise one, because in the 1930s, uh, America was overwhelmingly anti-war and, uh, and outright pacifism. Was As a result of, of uh, disillusionment because of World War I or other reasons? That was, that, that was perhaps the biggest force. Uh, World War I had come to our role in what was then called the Great War had come to be seen as a, as a, a kind of a sham. There were hearings in Congress that kind of uh, pinned the blame. Uh, on munitions makers and their lust for profits, the depression, the so-called Spanish flu, uh, the Russian revolution, all were to some extent by some people uh, blamed on the Great War. And now uh, a mere 20 years later, here we were again with another war brewing in Europe involving the same parties and uh, people uh, uh, didn't want any part of it. There was the famous Oxford Pledge, which many young Americans signed, which said that we won't fight. Hmm. Uh, and that that was uh, a very diverse and interesting and uh, widespread movement at that time. Well, didn't around a half million students, almost half of the undergraduates in the United States then participate in a strike against war in compulsory ROTC in 1936? That's all. Yeah. A lot of yeah, young there, men there, and It's women. an enormous number. Absolutely. In fact, women were at the forefront of the movement. But uh, young men, of course, recognized that they would be the ones called to fight. And each year uh, uh, in there, in the, in the, in the 30s, there, there was an, an ever, in, ever larger national student strike uh, over this issue. Uh, and as, as war approached, it became, of course, more urgent. Uh, culminating, obviously, in the beginning of the war in Europe in September of 1939, and then, crucially at home, the nation's first peacetime draft, which was enacted in 1940. 
Now, before that, you suggest that during the 30s decade, pacifism may have surpassed the Depression as the dominant social issue among American liberal Protestants, more than the Depression, uh, to the point where President Roosevelt declared, I am a pacifist in 1940? He did. And, you know, I think that... um uh, it may not be the wisest thing to try to rank these concerns, but uh, an important aspect of, of, of history generally is to try to put yourself back in the shoes of people who lived at a, at a different time and who didn't know uh, how things would turn out. The Depression had, had gone on for almost a decade by the time war broke out again in Europe in, in, in 39. It was it was a condition of life. People thought maybe capitalism would never recover. Uh, uh, the economy had had its ups and downs. There were some very unfortunate moves by the Fed and so on. Uh, but uh, nobody really knew what to do. Even the Roosevelt administration was groping around. And, uh, you know, uh, the the um, uh, the nation's Protestant denominations, many of them were more middle class uh, they didn't succeed as well uh, among working class Americans. And so it maybe was easier for for uh, war to be a concern. And of course, nothing is more urgent than war. Uh, the rest of it had been uh, part of the landscape for a long time. Was the war what led to the enactment of the draft law in 1940? Uh, I believe so. Um, the, well, are we the, talking about the war in Europe? Yes. And, and for younger readers or uh, maybe it's worth reminding them that uh, the war in Europe broke out in September of 39, um, uh, and, uh, you know, with uh, Hitler's invasion of Poland. Uh, many people don't realize that Stalin also invaded Poland from the other direction. Uh, German, uh, Britain and France went to war uh, uh, against Germany. And uh, in the United States, we were not in that war, but we were supplying Britain and in increasingly supporting Britain. And and um, as time wore on, we we were drawn ever um, more into the conflict to the point that um, we were we were actually fighting uh, openly in the Atlantic to um, to bring supplies to Britain. Well, the, uh, the Germany also wound up taking over France. Uh, uh, about 43,000 yes. men were granted conscientious objector status after the draft law was uh, enacted. Were they all pacifists? Um, that's, a, that's a great question. And under the draft, the draft law, everyone recall, everyone understood that in, in the Great War, we had kind of made a hash of things in this in this department. Uh, some uh, many draft resistors were abused. They were subject to harsh treatment in prison. There were there were not great provisions for 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 conscience on that front. Uh, well, the ones who were religious were, were treated differently than the ones who weren't religious. Uh, in the second in, in the second uh, in in the. Um, in, in World War Two, in yeah. World War One, there were some differences, but the the general point was we all everyone understood that it had been really bad. We didn't want to do that again, and so um, the nation's peace churches and the administration and Congress they came up with a law that made provision for conscientious objectors to war, and you had to ha you the basis of your objection had to be religious and had to be associated with a religion that uh, that objected to war traditionally. Uh, but the nation had thousands of draft boards, local draft boards in our sort of distributed system. And and it was up to these draft boards to decide whether 
to designate you a conscientious objector. And there were many differences even among the objectors. Some of them were willing to uh, be a medic, for example, or to do other work related to the war. Others uh, others were so uh, extreme that they refused even to register to obtain the exemption that might be available because they considered even that to be cooperation with the war machine. So it was quite a, and by the way, many more people remained pacifists than those who were designated, but women, of course, were not drafted then. There were older people. So there was a, a larger, a small but larger number who, who remained even after Pearl Harbor uh, pacifists. Jehovah's Witnesses, and you, but you point out nearly 2,000 absolute resistors were sent to prison. Yes. How, yes. They, what kinds these, of terms these, were they uh, were sentenced to? Um, they were sentenced to federal prison for, you know, a year to three years. Some of them even served two terms because they persisted in refusing to register or subject themselves to uh, conscription. And these really were the the hardcore radical pacifists who I think in the long run had the largest impact. And they were their experiences during the war uh, further radicalized them hardened them against social disrepute, against imprisonment, uh, uh, against poverty, and, um, and, uh, and also they were thrown together by their experiences in the war. And at that time, as a result, they were able to exchange ideas and debate and read and talk, discuss and so on. And it, it, uh, it actually made them more radical. Although not everyone, one of the people you mentioned, Don Benedict, decided while he was in prison uh, that he he said, it suddenly began to make a difference to me who won the war, and he enlisted. I'm assuming there were some others like him. Yes. Look, there's a whole landscape of people who changed minds all along the way. I mean, Bertrand Russell and um, Albert Einstein were were uh, uh, thoroughly pacifist and, and decided to lay aside those views uh, in the face of Hitler. In the case of Don Benedict, he's a fascinating figure. He was he was one of the uh, Union Theological Seminary students who uh, were uh, pretty fertile prominent resistors, went to prison. Don had experiences. Um, Don did uh, two prison stints, and in between them uh, lived in Detroit, where he observed the, the race riots at that time. I think it was in 43. And these were largely attacks on black residents by white residents. Uh, and um, he saw that it was federal troops that secured the city and protected black Detroiters. Uh, and he began to question the idea that that force and even violence are never justified. Uh, and during his second stint in prison, he thought ever more deeply about this. Also, the pacifists were among those who were most aware of what was happening to the Jews of Europe. And Benedict was aware of that. And um, the more he thought about this, the more he thought, what I'm doing is not right. And uh, very dramatically, he, he, he was, uh, he, I think he may have been in solitary at the time. He woke up and said to the guard, I, I need to talk to the warden. And he joined the, arm, the United States Army. And uh, we'll get into the whole link between uh, the pacifists of uh, during World War II and the civil rights movements that occurred later in, in a little while. But uh, I, I wanted to um, point out that you, you say— 
uh, although you commend many of these people for their idealism, integrity, courage, and influence, uh, you are also critical of their pacifism for offering a mushy, quote, hodgepodge of utopian ideas and crude absolutism, absolutism to counter the threats posed by the Nazis, which included genocide. Yeah, I, I, there's no doubt in my mind that had had America been invaded by its enemies, these these are our pacifists would have been among the first to be shot. Mm -hmm. uh, the pacifism is a, a nonviolent protest, uh, which may be the relevant focus for a moment is is effective against an antagonist who has a conscience, has a certain self image, has a free press, has a democratic system. Uh, and and it was effective for Gandhi in India. Many people don't realize that uh, American black civil rights activists from the 1920s visited Gandhi, learned about what was happening there. The black press reported on uh, Gandhi and the efforts of Indians to free themselves from the yoke of British rule. Did many of these people um, see themselves as Gandhians? Uh, yeah, they they adored Gandhi. He was revered and um, uh, and. Um, uh, and 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 so um, they they didn't just oppose war, but they wanted to bring about important important changes. Now, so I think with respect to the war in particular, George Orwell had an answer, you know, for British pacifists, and he said in effect that you know you're you're all. He, he went as far as to suggest that they were helping the enemy and they were kind of free riding on the uh, freedoms defended by uh, men under arms. Um, uh, American American pacifists. So, I, as I said, I think American pacifists were not in the right in suggesting that uh, the, that we not fight the war. Somebody had to fight it. Uh, they did fight in their own way, nonviolently, for some for for some of the same rights and uh, and 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 the American values that uh, they believed we were not living up to. And and that's what and that's what made them Im important. And not all of them remained pacifists. Even after the war, there were some who who came to see that they they had been mistaken. Dwight McDonald was one. Max Campbellman had been a pacifist. Later, joined the Marine Corps Reserves and became uh, an arms negotiator in the in the Reagan administration. So it's a complex business, even. With respect to violence, uh, Jesse Wallace Hugan, who founded the War Resisters League, said that she was against war. Now, she thought that uh, you could justify assassinating Hitler. And she said that she would defend her person if attacked. But 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 so the evil in her mind was the mass and, and uncontrollable killing of war. Uh, so, you know, there are some broad differences among among all of these folks and um uh but but my greatest interest as as i said as as you've said if you've implied is is in the in the uh their long-term efforts uh on behalf of um upholding american ideals my guest is daniel axt a-k-s-t his book war by other means the pacifists of the greatest generation who revolutionized resistance is published by Melville House, and this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Well, then the, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and that led the Germans to declare war on the United States. So uh, 
didn't isolationism and pacifism go out of fashion at that point? It it really did. Um, um, uh, in terms of the isolationists, who I, I deal with briefly in the book, uh, just for want of space and, and the need to focus, um, they uh, all along had said that we should stay out of war and remain militarily strong, which would help us to do so. And after Pearl Harbor, they joined the armed forces almost to a man and they supported the war. But American pacifism, many American pacifists immediately uh, also supported the war effort, in particular in the clergy, on campuses. Um, and, um, and those who remained pacifists remained quiet. Did they uh, offer they a realistic had... alternative to uh, going to war with Japan and Germany? Who had declared war anyone, on us? I don't think, I don't think anyone had a realistic alternative, and that's one of the reasons that pass, American pacifism lo, uh, largely went silent. Um, they, they, another reason was that they feared that uh, the government might uh, uh, shut them down. You know, their publications and uh, and so on. Many, um, many of the resistors in my book uh, spent decades under FBI surveillance and so forth. Um, uh, the government might, on, at, in wartime, have arrested even those not eligible for the draft simply for what it might call sedition or something. So, so uh, everywhere there were people whose offspring were fighting and who were living through this. And uh, the pacifists mostly went quiet. Again, exceptions might be uh, the radical pacifists who I focus on in the book. And they they took they were they were very different. They they persisted in calling the nation to conscience. They they criticized the internment of hmm. the West Coast Japanese Americans who were put in dusty far-flung concentration camps uh, around the country uh, for the duration of the war just because of uh, their ethnicity. They, uh, The pacifists were aware, as I said early on, of Hitler's persecution of the Jews. They advocated that America admit far more Jewish refugees. They uh, raised alarms. Which wasn't happening, was not by the way. Largely wasn't it, happening. Uh, that, that's correct. We didn't even take in as many. Uh, we didn't even fill the, the limited quotas mm. that we had. Um, they also said because of anti-Semitism not... in the U.S. government. It's been pointed out. There was a, a TV series yeah. that made that really yes. clear. Ken Burns's series. Yes. Uh, and Americans look. Americans. Uh, I don't think Americans wanted to be in the war. Americans did not want large numbers of Jews coming to the country. That's the reality. It was a different time. America. America uh, was significantly anti-Semitic uh, at that time with respect to country clubs, real estate, law firms, banks. I mean, you name it across the board. But in any case, um, the pacifists, the, the the mainstream press suppressed news of what we now call the Holocaust to a great extent. Uh, the pacifists said early on that not only did they raise alarms about persecution, but they said, we think there's something beyond persecution going on here. We think there's something like what we now call genocide. Uh, uh, mass murder is going on. Jesse Wallace Hugan, I mentioned earlier, uh, said uh, that she feared millions would die. And she called for an attempt to uh, negotiate an armistice. And it's one of the provisions would be the release of Jews from a German occupied territory. Uh, I, I'm not sure any of this was realistic. 
But the point is they they can they they consistently uh, called their countrymen to conscience. They 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 vocally opposed the bombing of civilians, culminating in Hiroshima, the use of atomic weapons in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But there was lethal bombing with uh, conventional weapons of civilians, massive bombing in Japan and and Germany, uh, and they they opposed that. So, you know, they they upheld values that in war tend to uh, tend to be jeopardized, to say the least. Uh, and and this was in keeping with uh, what they what they would do later. The American Civil Liberties Union fought the internments of the Japanese Americans. What was its position on the rights of pacifists? Well, the the um, the um, I'm not I'm not sure if that's correct about the ACLU with respect to uh, Japanese Americans. Well, that's but, what I um, have I def- have read in a history of the ACLU. But okay. Then, then it must be. I, I'm not. I, I just can't recall. I believe I addressed that, but I can't recall specifically if they took up that case. I, I, I feel that they didn't. But leaving that aside, I'm not certain. Uh, leaving that aside, what was? Your, remind me of your question. I was Forgive asking me. what whether the ACLU got involved in, protect, in protecting the rights of, of pacifists. Ah, uh, yes. Um, it, I, it was. There was not a huge necessity in the sense that. Congress had passed a, a, a reasonably liberal uh, draft act, mm-hmm. uh, conscription act, uh, such that if you were a conscientious objector and you had a religious opposition to all wars, you could register for the draft. You could make your case and say that, you know, I'm a Quaker or a, a Mennonite or whatever, and we're I'm against all war. I can't fight. I can't kill. And there was a path for you. Uh, if you didn't want to perform non-combat service in the armed forces, you uh, were offered a place in a, um, a, a a network of camps that were like the uh, Depression Civilian Conservation Corps camps. These were called civilian public service camps. And they did a variety of work there having to do with irrigation and firefighting and things of that nature. And you also had the opportunity as the war progressed to... Um, Provide uh, to um, to help fill the the yawning uh, uh, vacuum in staff for the nation's mental institutions, and this was very important. We can come back to this. Uh, you also could be a smoke jumper. There, so there were a variety of roles that you could have, and you could volunteer for very important and in, in many cases dangerous medical experiments that would not be permitted today. My humans. father was just excused. Uh, he was older. He had four kids. He had certain physical disabilities, and he just wasn't drafted. Uh, That's right. And so, you know, he had a deferment because of these other factors. But if you were a pacifist, you could, you know, you could volunteer for these experiments and so forth. So there was a path for you. You didn't have to. uh, The problem was twofold. Number one, there were there were some people who did not receive the conscientious objector designation that they that they sought uh, for various reasons. There was an appeal process. They didn't succeed. Now what? Well, some of them ended up in in prison. And then there were people, as I said, who were so dead set against all of it that they refused to go to the CPS camps. And some of them refused to even fill out a registration card. And they, too, they too ended up in prison. Now, weren't the four activists you devote 
a lot of this book to David Dellinger, Dorothy Day, Dwight McDonald, and Bayard Rustin on the political left. Should I assume that some of the pacifists who fought against U.S. engagement in the Second World War were on the political right? Uh, great question. Um, before Pearl Harbor, there was a large uh, movement that uh, has been called isolationist. You could call it anti-interventionist. Uh, they were anti-war conservatives. Quite extensive. It was the, it was an enormous movement, and one of the unfortunate things about Pearl Harbor was that along with the nation's legacy navy, uh, those Japanese bombers sank um, most of the strong voices on the right against war. I do think we'd have been better off historically if we'd had a more thriving tradition on the right as well as the left of opposing war. Um, uh, there, so there were conservatives. And then I want to uh, say that uh, with respect to um, Dorothy Day, Dwight McDonald, some of the others, even Dellinger, uh, he, left is a is an is is probably reasonably accurate, but it's not a very precise label. Uh, they had a strong libertarian streak, you might say. They uh, were many of the, many of the radical pacifists you might call anarchists. Um, they uh, Dorothy Day is fascinating. For example, she was first arrested as a young woman in a suffrage protest, um, and then finally, when women got the vote, well, she never cast a ballot in her life. Mm -hmm. She didn't want 501c3 status for her. Uh, tax-exempt status for her Catholic worker network because she didn't want government to have any role. And for all of these folks, contra today's left in some ways, government was, was not a source of redress or justice or anything or redistribution. Government was a source of, of militarism and tyranny. Government had put many of them in prison, as it would do again over the years. In prison, they experienced the total loss of autonomy that goes with incarceration. When they worked in the mental institutions, uh, they saw a Dickensian, uh, a, a, a landscape of Dickensian uh, uh, dungeons, really. Uh, and, and so they didn't see the government as a, a source of, of improvement in a way. You know, they thought that should come from each of us. And we'll get to uh, that. We'll get to those people in more detail in a little yeah. while after uh, we take a break. But I just want to get to one more thing before the break. You say that during the war, white and black pacifists, quote, transformed their wartime refusal from a philosophy of wartime refusal into active nonviolent system for confronting and defeating justice. Is it fair to say that the philosophy, resistance, and strategies of these people uh, influence what followed the civil rights and anti-Vietnam War movements? Absolutely, that's an important that's an important part of the book, and when we can talk more about that. But they they really th this what the war and their role, uh, it was a kind of a lab, you, you know, where they experimented with and pioneered and worked on techniques. In some cases, borrowed from labor and from other from Gandhi, from other sources, uh, strategies, techniques, approaches, and and ideology that. Uh, would become very, very important in, in uh, social change and political change in, in the decades ahead. We should point out that Lewis Hill, who uh, is the creator of Pacifica, we are a Pacifica station, actually originally KPFA, 
the radio station that started the Pacifica Group, was one of the people who was involved in war resistance during World War II and uh, actually went to prison at one point. Yes, Lou Hill and uh, Roy Kepler was involved. He he uh, he uh, also served in uh, did time. He was in a CPS camp, and his brother was tragically killed in a, an explosion in a CPS camp. So yes, Pacifica Radio in some ways is just one part of um, the legacy. Uh, you might call the, the legacy. That's right. The well put. The legacy of of uh, World War II pacifists. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI, a Pacifica station, at 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Oh, I marched to the Battle of New Orleans at the end of the early British wars. The young land started growing, the young blood started flowing, but I ain't a marching anymore. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Daniel Lacks. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, War by Other Means. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and then the number 2 WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And we thank you very much. And return to Daniel Axt, his book, War by Other Means, The Pacifist of the Greatest Generation Who Revolutionized Resistance, is published by Melville House. He's the author of four other books, two novels and two nonfiction books, and actually was a board member of the National Book Critics Circle for a time. Uh, let's talk about uh, the, the, some of the people, the four activists you devote much of this book to, David Dellinger, Dorothy Day, Dwight MacDonald, and Bayard Russell. Um, Dellinger, who became part of the Chicago Seven years later, was called a traitor because of what's been called his radical anti-authoritarianism. That's right. Uh, and again, we may have younger listeners who, who, who might not be as familiar with some of these these figures that uh, are known to older ones. Uh, Dellinger was a student, but long before the Chicago 7, which uh, was the subject of a recent movie, uh, Dellinger was a member of what was known as the Union 8. Uh, and they were students at Union Theological Seminary in New York. Uh, and there was provision in the draft law uh, for them to be deferred because uh, to be exempt from the draft, in effect, because they were seminarians. Eight of these students said that they could not sign that because they would not. It would be an acknowledgement of the power of the state to enlist them in, in the war project. That was we weren't even at war yet. But nonetheless, they were uh, sentenced. I think they got about a year to federal prison. He this was national news. It was. Pardon me, in Danbury, Connecticut. That's right, the new at prison and rather enlightened prisons for the by the standards of the time. Um, and uh, Dellinger was uh, is a was a kind of a radical anti-authoritarian. He was a militant all his life, and he was to become possibly the foremost figure in uh, organizing uh, opposition to the Vietnam War. He never wavered uh, in his. Um, 
uh, in his uh, radicalism and his commitment to nonviolence. Um, and um, he had a long and difficult career in in pushing for this kind of social change, civil rights and uh, against militarism uh, and and so forth. And even in um, the prison, he organized work stoppages and hunger strikes to protest arbitrary punishment, segregation, censorship of mail and restrictions on what they could read. That's that's right. I mean, they they went into these pacifists entered a federal prison system that even in the north was segregated, and this was a big bone of contention. And they they began the process of desegregating one at a time these institutions, which at the time, as I said, were considered to be enlightened. There was a, a prison administration that tried to use the bring to bear the latest uh, um, uh, understanding of, of how to deal with prisoners. They, they considered themselves humane and so forth. But these were segregated institutions in a, in a society that was significantly se- segregated. And so this was part of the shift, which we'll talk more about, I'm sure, um, mm-hmm. of, of the pacifists towards civil rights as a, as a focus for their uh, uh, efforts on behalf of change. Well, he was uh, uh, an opponent of the Vietnam War, but I suspect many people who might have participated in World War II were also opposed to the Vietnam War. Absolutely right. I mean, Dellinger, um, you know, Dellinger opposed all of them. He, he opposed the Korean War. Uh, he opposed the Vietnam War. He, he was opposed to militarism generally. And um uh, but there's no question that uh, later, uh, you know, uh, there were American veterans of World War II. George McGovern, a great example, a bomber pilot, as I recall, in the Second World War, a veteran uh, opposed the Vietnam War. Uh, so um, the world, in a way, came around uh, to a greater extent. But of course, the cert- to the pacifist view, but of course, the circumstances were very different. And um, there's there's no reason that uh, every war must be avoided or opposed. But on the other hand, one thing the pacifists gave us was a template because given America's history of military adventures since 1945, if your knee-jerk response was simply to oppose all of them, you you probably would not have been far wrong. Well, Bayard Russett, the future civil rights leader who later helped organize the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and Martin Luther King's 1963 March on Washington was another pacifist during World War II. Um, how relevant yeah, yeah. was the fact that he was a homosexual? Uh, well, so this is a fascinating and complicated topic. Rustin was a Quaker. He would not accept discrimination in any place that he found it. Uh, he did go to prison for refusing uh, to serve in the armed forces or go to a CPS camp. Uh, Rustin was also gay. And, you know, a, a book of his writings is called Time on Two Crosses because he was black and he was gay mm-hmm. at that time. And at that time, these were very difficult things to be. And um, um, Rustin famously in uh, the 50s was arrested in Pasadena on sex charges. And, and this really undermined his subsequent position in the civil rights movement. He had to operate behind the scenes. Because and, and the he fear develops, was this. He, he has a lesser place in the civil rights movement pantheon than people like A. Philip absolutely. Randolph, James Farmer, John Lewis, and, of course, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
Absolutely. So this had a lasting impact on him and on the movement. But what most people don't know is while he was in prison, uh, in uh, federal prison in Kentucky, he was leading uh, an inmate movement to overturn segregation there. And he'd already been brutally assaulted for refusing to acknowledge uh, the color line in that prison. He was assaulted by a corrupt judge who was also behind bars, white judge. And Rustin was leading this uh, inmate uh, brewing inmate strike when um, uh, the prison authorities were told that he had been attempting to have sex with men in in the prison, and this this uh, and he and he lied about it. It's a rare thing in his you know he lied about that and said he hadn't been, and and this um, really destroyed the movement within that prison that he'd been attempting to lead and weakened his position with the in the peace movement and the fellowship of reconciliation where he worked and um it foreshadowed you know what was ahead rustin is an extraordinary incredible uh fascinating and brilliant man and i i really uh there are two or three very good biographies and i urge urge everyone to read one he's just an absolutely fascinating uh individual uh one of the most compelling that i have encountered Dorothy Day was probably the best-known political radical among American Catholics at the time. In the 1930s, yes, do- she'd said she was one of the uh, she was one of the founders of the Catholic Worker Movement, which was a pacifist movement and provided aid to the poor and and the homeless. That's absolutely right. She she uh, uh, had been a journalist. She had a colorful life. She was a Catholic convert. Many people don't realize, even though she was a devout Catholic ever after, uh, she she opposed abortion. Uh, but yet in her youth, she had one. She was a complex and fascinating and an extraordinary figure. And she founded the Catholic Worker Movement to feed the homeless in Hungary across America during the depression people today really it would be hard to it's hard to imagine how bad things were during the depression um and she founded a famous newspaper the catholic worker newspaper and it it grew to a large circulation uh but she refused to change her views on war she already antagonized readers during the spanish civil war by refusing to take sides and and when world war ii broke out she she remained uh, in the pages of the worker opposed to the war it splintered her movement it shattered the circulation for some years but you know uh uh her her movement and she and her movement made pacifism catholic something that had been largely protestant uh, was was now in something open that seemed open to Catholics. She laid a path for Catholics. Later, uh, Catholics would be more important in the um, uh, op- in opposition to the um, the Vietnam War, um, and um, and she um, uh, it, it, the Catholic Worker Movement became uh, a training ground or a source for young uh, young radicals. Uh, uh, who would make an important contribution. A young man named Michael Harrington for a while was an editor at Catholic Worker and worked a little bit in the kitchen and so forth. And he wrote a book called The Other America uh, that was read by uh, read in the Kennedy administration and and uh, led to um, um, uh, the war on poverty, uh, which um, uh, was launched uh uh, by Kennedy and and later uh, LBJ, really, because of Kennedy's assassination. 
Now, following the U.S. declaration of war in 1941, Dorothy Day urged non-cooperation and said, I'm quoting, we must renounce war as an instrument of policy. Even as I speak to you, I may be guilty of what men call treason, but we must reject war. Young men should refuse to take up arms. Um, what was the response of the, the the leadership of the Catholic Church? Were they did they uh, take a position on on the war? I'm talking uh, about the American y- Catholic Church, not the the Vatican. Yes, which had which yes. had its own problems it's at a- the time. Yes, it's a great question. Um, Dorothy Day was a devout Catholic and and held herself out to be an obedient one. Um, however, in, in, nobody told Dorothy Day what to do, and um, and she had uh, the 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 American Catholic Church, like like other uh, denominations in the United States, backed the war effort. There were chaplains, uh, there were prayers, and so on, um, and and. They they didn't shut down her her her. her um, she was uh, Dorothy Day was after all not uh, employed by the Diocese of New York or any other Catholic entity. She was a Catholic layperson. Um, however, she I think held herself to be subordinate to um, the Catholic leadership and and but they, they perhaps understood they couldn't really control her and and uh, she had protectors. One in particular within uh, the Diocese of New York, and um, uh, and she was increasingly prominent, and so um, uh, you know she was allowed to go to go her way in part because I'm not sure there was any way ultimately they could have they could have stopped her. At one point, there was something in the Catholic Worker. It may have been an ad about uh, suggesting that um, that young men not register, and you know at that point she got a call saying that this was a bit too far and she agreed not to repeat that but you have to bear in mind that all of these pacifists understood uh, that they existed in a climate where you know it was a it was a war it was a very serious war a global war and uh, governments in such times uh, tend to uh, curtail civil liberties and uh, the freedom of the press and so forth so she um, uh, she held out my guest is Daniel Axt, whose latest book is War by Other Means, The Pacifists of the Greatest Generation Who Revolutionized Resistance, published by Melville House. I want to talk about Dwight McDonald, but first, before we do, what led you to even think about writing a book of this sort? Did, uh, did something spark the interest? Uh, you know, I uh, a big part of it was some time ago, uh, I taught for Berkeley, at Berkeley for a semester. Adam Hochschild was there, wonderful writer. He, he'd had a book called... He's going uh, to be a guest to on End our Old. show coming up in a couple of weeks. Oh, that's great. Uh, so he wrote a book called To End All Wars back then, and I had read it at some point, and it was fascinating. It was about opposition in Britain to World War One, and I started thinking, you know, I had read some about that, but I never had read much about opposition to World War Two in the United States. It seemed like it seemed inconceivable. It was this almost a sacred uh, cause, uh, uh, something not not a crusade, but almost, a, a, but but it's certainly almost a sacred mission. And after all, well, there were we bad guys attacked. and good guys in that war. 
That that's right. But again, back in the 30s, before we were in it, it was not all so clear. Before Pearl Harbor, after all, uh, um, you know, Stalin had invaded Poland. The Baltic countries had fought two. He fought two wars against Finland. Uh, and and who should we fight? The other thing, and this is important, is that people who opposed the war, at least Pearl Harbor, before Pearl Harbor, said, "Well, gee, why is it okay for Britain mm-hmm. to rule over India and for France?" To invade and 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 rule over North Africa and and uh, uh, Indochina and other places and the Dutch in 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 Southeast Asia and so on, and and yet it's not okay for the Germans to occupy France. Britain ruled over uh, forcibly uh, took and ruled over Ireland. The, these weren't just fringe concerns. These these things were addressed on the floor of Congress. You know, by mainstream politicians in American life at that time, again, before Pearl Harbor. Uh, and these were difficult questions, you know. Uh, so so the pacifists uh, had no hesitation in, in raising them. So uh, the more I read, the more fascinating it became to me. And I felt there, there was some work in this area, largely academic books or religious books. But no one, even in these books, there was no one who really that I could find had focused on the the past this particular pacifist the, the, this group in World War II, um, there, there was and and so um, and so I thought that you know that it offered interesting insights into our current situation to look back and and see what they had done and it allowed you to write about some very interesting people like yes Dwight McDonald uh, you report that when he was young he quote, spoke disdainfully of blacks, Jews, and women, and showed no signs of social conscience. So what led him to make a complete turnaround? Well, you know, do I, uh, do, uh, when he when he was that way and, and said things of that nature, he was very young. He was the product of his social class uh, and his times. He was a brilliant guy. He had a tremendous, shall we say, moral imagination. And... Um, and he changed and he he questioned and he changed and in in a short time he um became uh he 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 was very different from that and he he worked as an at, at partisan review which was a famously important little magazine uh at that time uh already he opposed the war he had started uh, he a had radical life- anti-war magazine named politics that talked about the yes. rights of conscientious objectors blacks and gays Yes, before uh, he his, for his wife review. Well, it was after Partisan Review. He 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 left Partisan Review on uh, because of the war and started this magazine politics, as you point out, this little journal with his wife's money, and it was extraordinary. It 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 reported on on conscientious objection. It reported on on the importance of 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 uh, essays appeared on the importance of women working outside the home and on people called homosexuals who should not be mistreated. Um, it it was just um, full of um, debate and uh, and insight and uh, as I say what 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 amounts to headlines from the future because it 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 seemed prescient it was read by people like the young Noam Chomsky um, and um, uh, the late great Nick von Hoffman who as a young man worked with Saul Alinsky as a community organizer before he became a Washington Post columnist Todd Gitlin later uh, went back into the archives to read editions of politics as a young man so uh, McDonald. After the war, wrote um, uh, a two lengthy pro, uh, uh, two part profile of Dorothy Day for the New Yorker, and he met Michael Harrington there. 
and and wrote about later wrote about Michael Harrington's book The Other America, which is how the Kennedy administration learned about it. So you can see, in a way, that the war on poverty can be traced back to these same <laughs> to these same figures, you know. And he was an outspoken opponent of the Vietnam War. So with with that kind of radical background, how did he become a movie reviewer on the Today Show? Uh, so you know, Dwight McDonald and and Dorothy Day were 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 these were all complex figures, and they, so you might call them conservative anarchists. I mean, they loved serious music. They hated popular culture. Uh, they they I mean, Dorothy Day loved opera and read would read Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. I mean, uh, Dwight McDonald uh, spent much of his career attacking. Uh, uh, kind of uh, middle brow culture, as I think he called it, and cult. I mean, he he he. These were complicated figures, and and they had aesthetic interests. I mean, even in the CPS camps, the pacifists uh, uh, founded an enormous number of uh, newsletters. They produced art, poetry. Uh, there were quite a number of poets who were uh, who were pacifists. So um, you know, they were very complicated uh, figures, and and um, I think it's important not to try to just pigeonhole them. We don't have much time left, but I want to uh, address something else you write. You you say that although uh, it's easy to dismiss them as a tiny and quixotic band of outliers, pacifists help teach us, along with Hannah Arendt, that even when it's necessary to fight those who choose the lesser evil, they forget quick, very quickly that they have chosen evil. It's a great line, and it's it's something that ever since I saw it has been has been ringing in my head. And it and and they they dealt with a moral conundrum that maybe we all face sooner or later. Uh, and um, you know they um, they uh, Dwight McDonald in particular made a big deal out of um, uh, insisting that you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't choose the evil, even if it's the lesser evil. You know, uh, and today on the left, we often do see. A desire to have uh, a, a concern about clean hands, shall we say, you know, um, and in the world of politics and in 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 life. Well, it, I'm not sure anybody has clean hands. I'm not sure you can have a life and have clean hands uh, there. There are um, uh, it's a it's a very complicated business. And so, you know, we see a lot of the concerns, uh, a lot of the shape of today's left coming uh, from the pacifists at that time, uh, uh, labor, for example, supported the war. The, the The war economy was booming. The depression had been ended, and the sons of these uh, working class Americans were fighting overseas. And 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 working class Americans supported the war and trusted the government that was waging it. And these pacifists, um, you can see the the kind of bifurcation or the divorce of the working classes by uh, an a, an important part of the left. Um, and when 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 the pacifists looked at the at the uh, political landscape, they saw that there was no hope of stopping this war. But they could see America's moral Achilles heel as clearly or more clearly than anyone else. And and that was the treatment of black Americans in the last uh, obviously black minute, Americans saw it most clearly in the last minute. How much of all of this you think continues to be a part of our lives today? 
Well, I think a, a great deal of it, because when they shifted focus to civil rights uh, and um, and 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 what flowed from that, which were the rights of women and gays and so forth, uh, I think I think a great deal of it persists. Uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, war also persists. Uh, but the, on the left, you have an, a reflexive wariness or opposition to war. And and I think ultimately that's a virtue. We are supporting war in Ukraine and we have engaged in war in Afghanistan and elsewhere. So these things continue. No, no question about it. The hard part, it's like anything else. The hard part is, 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 is telling right from wrong, you know, which is, which war to support, which not to support. Uh, I, I'm not a pacifist. Uh, uh, but, uh, if you had been a pacifist since 1945, uh, you, you probably would have been right most of the time. And, and that is, that is sobering. Thank you so much for being on our show. Daniel Axt, we've been talking about his latest book, War by Other Means, The Pacifists of the Greatest Generation Who Revolutionized Resistance from Melville House. It's been a pleasure speaking with you about a topic that pleasure doesn't get all much mine, attention. Uh, pardon me? I said it was. A, it's a topic that doesn't get very much attention but should. Then that's why I focused on it. And thank you so much for helping to bring some attention. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI. We are behind in our rent and in the payment of our, our rent for our, our broadcast tower. And we really need uh, our listeners uh, to, make, to help us through this. If you can, make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to wbai.org right now. That's give and the number two WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, War by Other Means by Daniel Axe. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950. Go online, give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, at $10, $15, $20, $25, whatever you can afford a month. We will say thank you if, if you do it for $10 or more by sending you a WBAI tote bag. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because we rely totally on listeners' spot donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. We are the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. Help keep us alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us on Thursday when my guest will be Carrie K. Greenidge discussing her new book, The Grimkeys, The Legacy of Slavery in an American Family. We'll see you then. <laughs>